Would you have done it? Would you have answered the call when they came to you pleading, begging, requesting that that you come to, to deliver, to rescue, to save them, even after they had rejected you? Or would you have been stewing over it, ruminating over that rejection for so long that you would have been totally disinterested in providing any aid or help to them whatsoever. Remember how they rejected Jephthah early on in chapter 11 of Judges. We already heard it. They they went to Jephthah and said, you are not going to get any inheritance in our family because you are the son of another woman. Just because Gilead had had slept with a a prostitute, and and you, Jephthah, you were the result. Well, it wasn't any fault of his, but they had made up their mind. It didn't matter. He would not receive any of the inheritance or be a part of the family. But then the tables turned. And those who rejected him now were back requesting him. They quickly changed their tune, and they said in verse 6, Come! Be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. We're already accustomed to, having gone through this book of of Judges for a number of Sundays, a unique and sometimes very peculiar instances in each of these accounts of the Judges. And Jephthah is no exception. There are really two things that jump out at us about this whole account of Jephthah. One of them is this incident of of this having to deal with being rejected and now being asked to deliver them. The other issue that leaves us kind of scratching our heads, wondering what he was thinking and how it actually played out was this vow that he made, which we'll come back to later on. And yet, despite these unique oddities, so to speak, of this account. One thing Jephthah shares with all the other judges, with the exception of Abimelech, who was kind of the anti-judge, how not to do it, is Jephthah's connection and relationship with the Lord, which in all of the cases of the judges stands out so much because of a lack of that interest in the Lord on the part of Israel in general during this time of judges. And you see it play out in, in Jephthah's life, these little details, again, where the Lord is mentioned again and again. Even as they came to him and asked him to lead them in the battle, you noted that if he was given victory, he acknowledged that it would be because the Lord gave him that victory. Even though he was a mighty warrior, he wouldn't take the credit himself. And and when they did accept him, then he went and, and he recommitted those vows publicly before the Lord at Mizpah. And then, of course, even as he he negotiated with the enemy king, Jephthah demonstrated that he was familiar with Israel's past, how God had delivered them in the past, how how God had brought them to this land. And finally, whatever we might think of of the vow that he made, the vow itself to offer up a a burnt offering. The burnt offering in the Old Testament was a, a symbol of commitment and dedication to the Lord, an act of worship and devotion. So it was clear that that Jephthah stood out like a sore thumb amidst the rest of the Israelites at this time. You can relate to to the rejection part. We already 
referenced that in the, the welcome, the, the introduction this morning earlier, the beginning of the service. We've all been there to some degree or another. Maybe you still remember being the last one on the playground. Nobody actually picked you, but one of the teams got stuck with you because nobody chose you. You were rejected or dismissed. There might be a relationship or two where that feeling still stings. You, you maybe thought or were convinced that, that you and, and this other individual were, were right for each other until they chose someone else, they favored somebody else, and you felt because you were rejected. Or in the workplace, you felt qualified for this project, but the boss and, and the team was comprised of, of other coworkers, excluding you, rejecting you. Maybe still to this day, that is how you feel in, in your relationship with your parents, that you were never good enough for them, that you always kind of felt rejected, or that you were a disappointment to them. In those cases, when those things arise in our lives, how, how do you respond? Especially when the tables turn. When those individuals or those groups of people now who have rejected you, who have dismissed you, turn around and they come back to you and they need something from you. There's a very real temptation, isn't there? To tell them to go take a, a long walk off a short pier. Go fly a kite. I'm not interested in helping you. Do you forget so quickly how you had treated me in the past? Now you are on your own and, and, and you just kind of relish the idea of seeing them get or receive their just desserts. And you kind of would feel better if it went miserably for them to know they needed you and you now had the power to turn them down. But that wasn't how Jephthah responded after being rejected. True, he did point out, he did remind the Israelites who came to him, wait a minute, didn't you, didn't you previously cast me out and, and reject me? But that wasn't because he was so insecure or needed to puff up his own pride. It was rather to convict them one small step to help the Israelites realize how far they had fallen away from the Lord. Jephthah was not going to let his own pride stand in the way of the greater good, and really more than that, serving his greater God. So he didn't let that past rejection get in the way of serving and coming to the rescue of his people. It's hard not to to note a parallel at this point. And, and we always have to be careful because Scripture doesn't explicitly make this connection. But when we talk about somebody who was rejected now being asked to deliver, it's hard not to think of another individual who was in that very same position. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples? Did he foreshadow and warn them, the Son of Man must be rejected and suffer and die, and three days later rise again. He knew he was going to be rejected. But did Jesus turn away from those who rejected him, including you and me? No. So it's very accurate. We too can say we have been rescued by a reject. Jesus was rejected, and yet despite that, he did not turn away from us and continued on to carry out everything that was necessary to rescue, to redeem the very individuals, us, who, as I mentioned in the children's message, every time that we choose sin, 
We reject him. Every time that we choose our path over his is another rejection. But even if you could add all of that up collectively of everybody on the planet, it wouldn't be enough for Jesus to say that he had had enough and to turn away from us. He knew the rejection he was going to face. And he rescued us anyways. And he has set us apart, washed us, cleansed us, made us whole to live a life of love and service to others. Shame on us for the times that we haven't. For the times that we have clung to that, that grudge, that bitterness, somebody treated me poorly and so I will not let it go. Somebody hurt me in the past and I will not move on. I will not. But isn't it interesting how quickly we embrace and receive and accept the, the forgiveness and grace that, that Jesus extends to everybody? That will take, we'll snatch it up in a heartbeat. But when somebody else needs it from us, we hang on to bitterness and resentment and grudges and we carry it with us. Justified or not, doesn't matter, we've made up our minds. How much more remarkable then that Jesus, rejected, still comes to our rescue with his grace and truly then sets us apart to live a life of sanctification just as Jephthah did. Jephthah was not a, a hothead. In fact, the, the whole account, if you notice that we had just kind of an excerpt that was cut out of the lesson due to length, that whole section that was cut out was the message that Jephthah sent to the king of Ammon. He tried diplomacy. He tried to go back and forth and explain to him, no, you're, you're missing the mark here. We don't have to go to war over this. But when it became clear that the king of the Ammonites was not really interested in what Jephthah had to say, then war was on. And it's interesting, it stands out in this account compared to the ones that we've looked at previously, how brief the details are of the war that was waged. Just a few short verses, and we're told in verses 32 and 33, Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aroer to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. That's it. That was the war. That was the battle. Actually, what gets more attention in this count than, than this whole rescue on the part of Jephthah is the head-scratching vow that he made previously. Before he went to war, this was, again, the promise that Jephthah made. He said to the Lord, if, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Again, not the vow itself so much. That was a vow of dedication to, to offer up a burnt offering, but the foolishness, the lack of thoughtfulness that went into making this promise, not fully realizing or comprehending, especially when this was typical in this culture, for the women to come out and greet the, the victors after a battle, that lack of foresight on the part of Jephthah is discouraging. And this head-scratching vow tugs a little bit at our heartstrings depending on how it actually played out. Now, historically, there have been 
two basic interpretations of what actually happened as a result of this vow. The one, the simplest, the way the text speaks, seems to indicate that Jephthah did the very thing that he promised. After his daughter had the opportunity to go out and spend a little time with with her friends, that he carried out the vow and offered her up as a sacrifice, that he killed her as a burnt offering. Now that doesn't bode well on the part of, of Jephthah. Obviously we're clear on God's commands not to take life. And surely God in the Old Testament actually does permit for a vow that was made in a foolhardy nature That is a vow that can be broken if it would have been, in this case, to end somebody's life. The other other interpretation, and I suppose there is a a good amount of merit on the part of this, is, is not that Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering, but that the sacrifice he was offering was that she would be a virgin, that she would be celibate for the rest of her life. And that topic of her virginity does come up in the verses uh, repeatedly. So again, it has some merit. But at the end of the day, we don't need to to necessarily know how it played out. There's a a part of us that wants to uphold Jephthah and assume the best and I think put that that interpretation that surely he wouldn't have killed his own daughter. But but here's the thing about judges and, and no exception in the case of Jephthah. We don't need, even though Jephthah is mentioned in the Heroes of Faith in chapters 11, we don't need to elevate the judges, to some sanctified state to appreciate what God did through them. Because actually, in using flawed, failed individuals, the Lord remains the hero. And that's really his track record throughout history, isn't it? It's God using flawed people. It's God using imperfect sinners. It's God using people who have done some pretty atrocious things and using them to carry out his purposes so that our attention isn't unduly given to the individual, but to the Lord, who is so determined to rescue, so determined to save, so determined to deliver his people that he'll use anybody under the sun that he needs to. Now, however this vow played out, Again, even though Scripture never makes this connection, it's hard when you are considering the possibility, very likely, that a father sacrificed his only child and not think of the similarities between our Heavenly Father who sacrificed his only child. Only his was not a foolish vow at all. His was a promise first given right after the fall into sin. Again, going back to to that promise that he would send someone who would crush Satan's head and God would deliver on that promise. Not foolish by any stretch of the means whatsoever, but the best promise ever. And God made good on it. He delivered. He handed over his only child, his only son, our Savior Jesus. So that no matter how many times, no matter how frequently We reject Jesus. No matter how often we hang on to bitterness and grudges and we fail to forgive others, Jesus does not treat us the same way. So amidst all the uncertainty of of how that vow actually played out, we have this certainty. God did deliver on his promise. God has 
rescued the very individuals who rejected him. Now, as you know that, as you consider that, as that weighs on your heart and, and fills you with joy, consider those that you have been hurt by, those who have rejected you, and think about the bitterness that you cling to, the unwillingness to forgive and let it go and move on. And compare that and hold it right next to how your Savior has treated you. And let it go. With the grace and the power that only can come through knowing that we have a Savior who has not held our rejection of him against us, how can we hold that against others? Instead, lavish the same love and grace on them that your Savior lavishes on you. Amen.